everyone. Welcome back to the Adoptive Podcast with Maya Parker. Today we have on the special guest, Clint Murphy, who, if you're on Twitter, you definitely know about him. He has over 150K followers on Twitter. He's a CFO. He has two kids, so he's a dad. He's also a husband. He's balancing all of this and his brand with Twitter, his podcast, the Pursuit of Happiness podcast. He's just doing so much, and I think he's the perfect guest to have on to talk about all of this. So how are you today, Clint? I'm doing really well. Thanks for asking. A lot going on, as you said, and trying to do it in a way where we can have fun and grow and achieve our mission and our goal. Yeah, and what is that mission? The goal is to achieve a certain level of financial independence and then to be able to be location flexible so that when our when our boys graduate, we'll be able to live part-time somewhere else in the world, part-time back here as a home base and, and just pursue whatever we want to pursue. I think that's an amazing goal. Like I love the idea of being so financially free. I can just travel on Airbnbs everywhere. I saw that and somewhere, I don't know exactly where I heard this, but like when you were younger, you live close to Vancouver and you live kind of a nomadic lifestyle. Is that the reason you just really enjoy your early years of like moving it from place to place and traveling and visiting new places? Yeah, that's a good, good point. So I was born in just outside of Vancouver and then we lived five years in Quebec, which is on the other side of Canada. And I've lived two years in Bermuda, two years in Toronto and a year in Saskatchewan. But I think throughout all of that, we never really had or I never had much money. So I didn't get to travel growing up, Maya. And I think for people, it's beneficial to see the world, to grow, meet new people, new cultures, new languages, and then to make a decision after you've seen multiple places to say, what is the best place to live? And it's hard to say any one is the best without seeing a lot. I think that makes sense. Um, I heard someone once say this, but like experiences with people you vibe with is like the best investment one person could probably make. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I was lucky enough when I was in my early 20s to make a, a good friendship circle. And some of those people are still my friends 20 something years later. And we push each other, challenge each other and support each other so that we can all grow together. And so the more friendships you can have like that, the better. And, and you're on Twitter, so you always see people say, your your network is your net worth. The five people you spend your time with determine who you'll be. And for me, those four or five people, and maybe even the top 10, because you spend two thirds of your time at work, and the people I surround myself with wor at work are amazing people. So it's a win all around. But yeah, your statement about like the five people that you spend the most time with is kind of what you're going to amount to be. That leads me to like my first question. You're the average of the five people like you learn from the most that means one of the people you learn from has to be more intelligent than you in some aspects of whatever you're speaking about so can you tell me three people that anyone could potentially follow today and what like you learn most from them that would be easy for me is the first one would be saw hail bloom and he writes the best threads i've seen they're phenomenal and his consistency is next level the second one would be dickie bush and i did take ship 30 for 30 and it was game changing for me and Dickie's copywriting and skills in that arena are phenomenal. And the third one, I guess I'd throw out then would be his partner. So he, he founded 
Ship 30 with his partner, Nicholas Cole, who goes by Cole. And I was lucky enough to have a conversation with him earlier this week on my podcast about his new book, Snow Leopard, and it was phenomenal. But that's a few. There's there's so many. I put out a, a thread a week or so ago and listed 10 great accounts to follow across a wide variety of domains. Yeah, I think Sahil Bloom, I hear a lot about and I had no idea about him, but he seems to be really good, I guess, at like content creating and writing. What is like one main thing that he said that like kind of stuck with you other than like his threat formats? I took his course audience building and what really jumped out at me on that one was he showed us his notion board. And for those who are listening who don't know what notion is, it's almost like Excel mixed with Evernote. And he showed the pillars that he writes about along the top row. And then each column just had a ton of topic ideas. And so it was clear to me that the amount of information that I was consuming, which then leads to creation, was not good enough. And I read almost a book a week. So it was telling me, even though I'm reading about a book a week, I'm, I'm not doing enough. And so I subscribed to six different magazines across a variety of domains, Wired, Success, Inc., Psychology Today, etc. With the idea that the more good content I can consume across multiple different areas, the better I could create. And that was the biggest takeaway I got from him. Yeah, I think that's smart. Like I've been trying to be more picky about what I'm consuming so I can can have better outputs. So I think that makes total sense. So my second question is tell me about your mantra or quote that like stuck with you. I don't know about you, but I'm a big quote person and I think you learn a lot about someone by their favorite quote. Oh, it's right there. Yeah. So I have four quotes in my, this is sort of my office personal cave at home and we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit by Aristotle is a top pick. Then there is a quote by Winston Churchill, which is never give in. And the whole premise being never give in, always keep pushing. That's big. Uh, I, I'm not sure if you've heard Theodore Roosevelt's The Man in the Arena, but that is uh, beautiful. And it talks about, you know, it's not the critic who counts. It's not the person in the stands who counts. It's the person who is in the arena with dirt on their face and sweat and blood that deserves the praise. And when you read it and you listen to it, it just screams like, be the person who gets in the arena. And Sawhill actually talks about that a lot as well. And then the, the fourth of them, it's uh, again, it, it's, it's by Calvin Coolidge and it's called Press On. And it says, nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Genius will not. Education will not. And it gives you a reason for each of those why they're not good enough. It's a, nothing but persistence and determination can get you to where you want to go. Yeah, I totally agree. Those are some great, great quotes. I never heard of them. So this is actually a question for someone else who asked this. It's Parker from Twitter. And he says, describe oh. the feeling you had when you made your first investment. Oh, gosh. I mean, when I made my first investment, that would have been, it was so long ago. And I probably didn't have a feeling about it because I was so young. And, and I'd read enough about the concept of just take your, you know, your company has a matching plan and you just take it off your payroll and they invested in something for you. So I never really put thought into it. I would say the first time that I bought an income property, which would have been about a decade ago, 
that felt very different. Then we bought our next one. And, and then a couple of years later, we bought four more. And that started to feel like, okay, now we're on a path to create long-term wealth. And in the subtle difference between being, when someone describes rich, a, a way I've heard it described is you still have to work to pay for your lifestyle, even though it's an expensive lifestyle. Whereas wealthy, you only have to work if you choose to. You can still live your lifestyle without working. And so once we started to get our portfolio above a certain number, I could see that wealth was in our future. Even if it was 10 years, 15 years away, it was there. It would happen. And, and so we're probably 10 years away. But super excited and happy about it that's crazy uh, i never heard it that way that was a great way of putting it because i can feel like i can imagine like people i i see in my real life who i feel like are rich that's like the perfect way to explain them i think that's really good and somewhere i read that like you said you had 95 percent of your like portfolio of your assets in real estate and like five percent like bitcoin and bitcoin miners like so what's your thing with real estate i know you say you have a lot of experience so you go like deep and you're like all in on it, kind of the Warren Buffett thing on like concentrating in certain assets to like build wealth and diversifying to like preserve it. So what's your thing about real estate? What'd you learn from it? Like what's your secret advantage that, um, that makes you so confident in putting so much money in real estate? What I do by day when I, when we say I'm a CFO, I'm a CFO at a real estate development company. And so we do development. We have an income portfolio. We lend money against real estate properties, and we also own a large portion of a REIT. It's a Canadian REIT, but it invests in properties down in Seattle. And so when you look at that mix, I'm touching all areas of real estate, all the way from due diligence to land acquisition, construction, development, marketing and sales, raising the financing, getting the capital, all aspects of that. I have insight into. And so when you when you talk about stocks, I am a finance major or accounting major. I do have a master's in accounting, so I understand that whole side of things, but I but I don't have the capacity to sit and do the due diligence required to make an investment in individual companies. So that would leave me to just put my money in the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones and leave it. With real estate, I have that knowledge and experience and capacity to do the homework, to say, where should I be buying? Why should I be buying there? Where do I think there's a greater likelihood of appreciation? Where do I think the path of progress is going? And you may have heard of the idea of gentrification. Where do I think will gentrify and hence the values will go up? And over the last 15 years, or I guess 20 now, I've been successful at it enough that I believe in my capacity to do it. And it's also easy to get 95% of your assets in real estate because you're levered usually five to one. So if, if as an example, you have a million dollars and you put 200,000 of that in stocks, it's not 20% of your investments because the 800,000 that's in real estate probably bought four million dollars worth of real estate so now that 200 grand is only five percent that's the 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 link there maya yeah my mom's a realtor so when i told her that you were coming on a podcast she got really intrigued 
Um, so what makes a, I guess a hot market uh, for like real estate investing? Like I try and ask my mom and I know she has a lot of real estate investors as a realtor, but it's still kind of confusing to me. So if you could add clarity on what exactly makes like a hot market or a great place to buy real estate. In. It always depends on what you're looking to buy. If you're looking to buy cash flow, it will be different than if you're looking to buy a property that will appreciate in value. The way I tend to look at it is I focus on long-term value appreciation. And so I look at markets that consistently have higher demand than supply. And when you think of the supply, it's usually something that's constrained. And what I mean by that is Seattle is very similar to Vancouver. San Francisco is very similar to Vancouver. And why that is, is when you look at the city of San Francisco as an example, you have water all around it. There's only so far they can go. They can't, if you were to take Texas, they just go further out. They just keep building and adding roads. But in Vancouver, we're surrounded by the U.S. border, mountains, and the ocean. So you can't go, I mean, you could go to the suburbs, but that's not, Vancouver itself can't expand. And so I look for areas that are like that, areas where people really want to live. So our city, as an example, is over the last 20 years, consistently voted one of the top 10 cities to live in. And then once I've done that, I start to look at more detailed information. And what I look at there is I look at three product types and I'll, I'll draw little lines in the air. We have at the bottom, you have single family homes or sorry, you, you have apartments. Then you have townhomes. Then you have single family homes. And what happens is the price of the apartments can rise up to a point where it starts to bump up against a townhouse. And then someone's going to say, well, why would I live in an apartment when I can own my own row home or townhouse? And so they'll jump up into the next tier. Then the townhouses can go up in value until they start to hit the bottom of the single family. Because why would you live in a townhouse when you can own your own yard, your own land? And so those barometers, you can look at how they've traded against each other over time and start to track which asset class is most attractive. So that's one thing. The second thing is you look at the geographic dispersion. So if, if we do like a bullseye, in, in our city, Vancouver's the bullseye, and it usually appreciates more than the outlying areas. So you look and say, well, what are the prices in Vancouver, greater Vancouver, the suburbs, and compare what's moving against each other and how they're moving relative to their historical averages. And then you overpair that with your bands for the single family townhouse and apartment. And it starts to tell you what area is outside of historical norms and might have an opportunity. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is looking for what we call the path of progress. And so if an area is really hot and really expensive, people can't afford to move into it. And then the question is, where are they gonna go? Are they gonna go four blocks east? Are they gonna go four blocks west? North, south? And so you're trying to see where they'll go before they go there. And that way you can go to the new area before it's the new area. And you're getting in at today's price, five years from now when all the young hipsters have moved into that area and the nice restaurants and shops are there, the value's up and you were in before then. Yeah, so it's kind of, it sounds the way you're wording it, historical averages mainly, or just like kind of trends, I feel like, so it reminds me a lot of stocks and like how you mentioned S&P 500, like the historical average and seeing like the differences between that. That makes more sense because I know more about stocks than real estate. So that, so that helped me a lot. But 
Is there anything else that you wanted to add to that? I think I kind of interrupted. Because you know more about stocks, I'll give you an analogy I came up with last year that I think people who like stocks can understand. So I, I look at real estate in three different groupings. So the first one is you have your FANG stocks. High appreciation, no cash flow. That's San Francisco, Vancouver, New York, Seattle. Those are, those are your class A assets in class A areas. They don't really cash flow, but they appreciate a lot over time. Then you have your blue chip stocks. That's like a townhouse, a little bit into the burbs, but not far. It cash flows a little, and it has a little appreciation. It's like your IBM. Then you have your dividend stocks. So now you're going further out. Let's say Ohio. Good cash flow, 7 8% clip, no appreciation. You pay the same price today as you will 20 years from now, but you get 7% on your money year in, year out. And so when you start to think about real estate like you do stocks, you can start to decide, do I want to be a tech investor? Do I want to be a blue chip investor? Or do I want to pursue dividends? And, and that gives a little bit of an easier way to frame it. Yeah, that's a great way. Is uh, So I would kind of add another category, like kind of the risky growth plays. What, oh, would that be like flipping houses and stuff? Well, the risky growth plays might be um, you think an area is going to get rezoned. So you buy land in the hope that it gets rezoned. And if it does, you get a huge win. And if it doesn't get rezoned, you lose. Yeah, that makes sense. Kind of like the penny stock, kind of like that. Like you see the potential, but something like one or so things have to change for that to like be realized. That makes sense. Exactly. Exactly. So I know you put out a thread that like in 18 days and in your interview with Wolf Financial was like in two months. So I guess coming up very soon, you and your wife are going to be working even closer together and she's going to take over pretty much the Instagram and TikTok and the other social medias, and you're going to lay out the blueprint and she just follows it. So can you explain how you mix personal relationships, your wife, and your digital business successfully? It's a great question, Maya, and we don't know yet because we haven't started. And there's, you know, you're not the first person who said, oh, wow, this is going to be fun to watch. But I think what you have to do is I have to set a vision and trust her as a person and a professional. She's one of the brightest people I've ever met. She's super organized, super diligent, a hard worker. And we've known each other now for 20, 27 years we've been dating or together. So, it, you know, at this stage, we know how each other works. And I'm, I'm probably going to be a little too harsh and a little too demanding, but I need to step back from that. I need to be mindful and say, hey, here's where I see it going. What do you think? What direction do you want to take it? And, and I'm going to have to largely, for the platforms that she's going to oversee, I have to let her be the expert in those platforms. I have to let her lead. And so the way I'm looking at it is, I feel very confident with Twitter and Instagram. I, I've gone to Instagram by myself uh, and, and she's helping, but and it, it was growing quickly, but I did make some mistakes that got me in, in a bit of trouble. On YouTube and TikTok, I want to hand over the reins. I want to be able to say, hey, you have me for four hours on a Saturday, four hours on a Sunday. I'll film whatever you want me to film. You write the script, you create the plan, 
And then once I'm done filming, I don't even like, I don't even really want to watch what happens. I don't want to go read comments. I don't want to touch those two platforms. I just want to want to record and maybe consult, but I want her to be the expert on that. And, and then where I see there's books I want to write that are in my head. There's courses that I want to create. There's cohorts I want to launch. And so I want to work with her, Maya, to build those out and use her organizational ability to pull things out of me and make it work. And so that's that's where I see us working together. But I have to be willing to take a step back and let her lead. That makes sense. Um, I was really interested because, so I have a younger sister and we, a lot of the times, like when I was first starting, kind of like side things, kind of businesses as a kid though. So it wasn't really official. Like we would work together and, but like not really work together. Like it didn't really work. So I was wondering like how you guys are gonna make it work. So I can't wait to follow along that journey. And hopefully you write more threads about that. I think it's so interesting. Um, I think Alex Hormozzi or something like that, he does that with his wife, um, the business side. That'd be cool if he talked more about it. Um, so something very interesting, your most interesting tweet that I've seen so far was this quote that you had, which is, we suffer more in imagination than reality. I think it's so interesting. So I would love you to expand more on that. Yeah, so the, the idea there is, and for the listeners who don't know, or I guess viewers, because you're on YouTube as well. You're a, a multi-platform star now. I'm pretty deep on Stoicism, and I also study Buddhism. And both of them have a concept of really auditing your thoughts, and we are not our thoughts, and recognizing that our thoughts are just constant. And what you'll notice, Maya, when you start to pay attention to your thoughts is they're almost always negative. 90% of the time, they're wrong. And they were. The way we think in the, th that thought engine that's in there at some point in our life, it may have served us, but more often than not, it doesn't. And so what Stoicism, and I believe it was a Seneca quote, what Stoicism teaches you is to not let your thoughts control you, but you control your thoughts. And so before you recognize a thought, and then you ask yourself if it's true, and if it is, you accept it. If it's not, you don't. And so you train yourself to be in control of your mind. And for me, it was the most life-changing moment I've ever had. You know, there's probably three big ones. That was one of the three. Yeah, that quote, like, stuck with me. Um, like I said, I'm big on quotes. And I was like, that was so cool. Because I definitely do think so. That is true. Because a lot of times I thought something to be true, but in reality it wasn't. So I feel like you need to separate that more, and like you said, separate it. So I think that makes sense. Um, so this is kind of a question from someone else as well, which is you post many threads that go viral. Uh, this is not by accident. So could you tell me what makes a bad Twitter thread? Like what makes a thread not go viral? The number one thing that makes a thread go viral, not go viral, is it's a it's only it's only about you. So the number one thing that makes a thread go viral is it's about the reader and it's providing value and it's making them better for reading it because you have your hook and your reader has to know that if they're going to open the hook and go into the thread, they're going to end up getting more value out of it than they put into it. That's, that's the key. And, and so many people write for themselves and they don't write for the audience and they don't think, how does this make my audience better? And right now, in fairness, a lot of what's going viral is, you know, 10 Chrome extensions that'll make your life easier. Like, 
sure, I guess that's valuable. And you have to ask yourself, who are you building your audience for and why are you building it? So if, if I wanted to be at half a million followers in under a year, I could do it by writing that content three times a week. Chrome extensions, Excel, Mac, iPhone, Reddit. But, but then you ask yourself, to what point? If I want to help people grow, and I'm refining it down a little, I want to help people grow personally, self-development and be financially free. Those are the two things I wanna focus on. If all I do is share threads on Google and Excel and Chrome extensions, how will I ever touch people in the way that I want to? If I ever wanna create a course that teaches you how to, how to get things done, why would you take a course on how to get things done from the guy who only writes about Google Chrome extensions? You wouldn't. And so you need to make sure that you're balancing, and Amanda Natividad talked about this, you need to make sure you're balancing value with virality. And the value is tied to your long-term purpose. So that my podcast is about growing as a person and financial freedom. Everything I write is going to be about those two things. And so you need to tie that together. And occasionally I'll throw in a, a viral thread on Microsoft Excel, but you got to balance that out. And I do use Excel every single day for roughly, you know, on average every day for the last 20 plus years. So it's, I'm a big fan. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. It's kind of like a thing where like, if you're trying to attract certain people, you have to be like, if you want to attract people that you like or, or like yourself, you have to be yourself. And so not just doing something for virality. And I agree with you, like all those Chrome extension ones, like 10 things, you wish you knew something like that. Um, so that makes that makes total sense. I think that's really intriguing. Um, so you also mentioned like the courses. So you're not gonna get uh, the people that you want for your courses or for what you're trying to attract with your podcast to touch people there. So uh, that makes that makes total sense. How do you create your threats? Like, do you go have a notion template like all these other people of like these hooks? And then I notice you kind of use this. Oh, you're you just do it yourself? All in my head. Really? Yeah, I'm I'm so I'm I'm a bit a bit of an odd duck in that most of my threads I even write in my head. So I you know, I'm I'm busy with my boys. Like my youngest is out here playing ball hockey in the backyard. I've got a hockey game, I've got to go coach tonight. I had a podcast this morning. I was at my other son's basketball game, went for a walk with the dog, now I'm talking with you, now I'll go to hockey. And so somewhere in there, if I was going to release a thread tomorrow, I would start to think. I'd write the hook. And then once I had the hook, I would create. So I do everything in layers. Layer one is always the hook. That's where all the time goes. Layer two becomes what are my headers. I write the TLDR in advance of writing the thread. Because when I have the TLDR, then I just have to fill it out. And so I can do that while I'm driving. I can do that while I'm walking the dog, while I'm watching TV, while I'm, so, so I just, I let the thread hook percolate. Now that said, it's becoming harder and harder. The longer I'm on Twitter, the more content I burn through. And so the number one list on my to-do list for my wife, when she pulls the, pulls, pulls the final date 
which is 11 days from now, is creating all those processes and systems and databases and tying it all together. And so I'll move from a, like, I'm flying a lot by the seat of my pants, Maya, and it'll move from that. And like some nights I'm sleeping four and a half hours, it, you know, twice this week I slept for four and a half hours. And it's just not sustainable, which is a large reason she's going to take this step so that it's better for all of us. Yeah, to prevent burnout. And so you mentioned that you, like, I had no idea all these other things. You're, you're a hockey coach. Um, your kids, you're very active in what they're doing. You're at their basketball games. How do you balance it all? I mean, you do so much. You're a chief financial officer, all, all of these different things. How do you balance it? I heard a great line from Matt Frazier, and if you don't know who Matt Frazier is, he won the CrossFit Games five or six times in a row. And when he was in college, he was compete. He was completing a double major in engineering and business, and he was competing in the CrossFit Games and getting on the podium. And so when someone asked him, how do you do this, Matt? He said, it's simple. It isn't easy, but it's really, really simple. You take everything else in your life that doesn't contribute to those goals, and you cut it the F out. And so what do I do now? I cut out a lot of the garbage. On Twitter, I try to spend most of my time creating, not consuming. I interview at least one guest a week, so I read a book a week. How do I combine that with family? Well, if they're watching a show on Netflix, I read the book while we watch the show. I sleep very little, and I try to fit things in. So at work, I walk almost 45 minutes a day to an hour a day during lunch. Or, or I take, I have five or six reports. I'll go for a walk with them. Hey, let's go for a walk. Let's have coffee. Let's talk while we walk. So you're getting the exercise while you're doing that. A lot of it's getting up early for the hockey. You know, my little guy, he practices at like six in the morning. So it's doing that. And then I, the weekends are, the weekends are work days because you, you need to use, you need to use those hours. And then I think two other things I haven't mentioned to you, uh, I'm studying to be a mindfulness meditation teacher. So I'm almost done that practicum one ends in a few weeks or practicum two, sorry. So almost finished that. And I write fantasy novels with my sister. You have all these different skills. I mean, writing, you're good at investing, you're good at content creating, so many things. What or like, say, the top three skills that you enjoy the most or maybe the ones that you're focused on getting better? Like the ones that you're like the best at and the ones that you're trying to learn how to be better at. It's so hard to cap it at three. So the for me, part of it stems with, you know, I was diagnosed with ADHD as an adult and Part of that is just an endless energy to learn. And so my, my number one strength, my number one skill, my number one value in life is learning. I am all about growth. And so that's always my biggest focus, to grow every day. The second one would be really improving my mindfulness and growing my abilities with meditation, mindfulness, and shadow work, which I, I, I tie all of those together. And then the last one would be, I think it ties to competition. And what I mean by competition is I like to do crazy things, like run every day for one and a half years, do Ironman races, 
read a book a week. Eventually I want to read two books a week. And so things that normal people don't do. And then I want to help other people do that to achieve at, at their highest levels. So those are the big three. And then I want to write. I want to be such a better writer. You're already amazing. You're probably in the top 1% of writers. Like, I think your writing is very easy to digest. It flows really well. flows really well. Like, music, I think it's great. I think I agree. I want to be a better writer as well. Uh, that's a good one. So you're the owner of, I got it wrong. I said Pursuit of Happiness. It's Pursuit of Learning Podcast where you interview authors. And I heard you read, like, 40, 50 books a week. I mean, a year, which is crazy. Um, I probably haven't even read more than two books this year. But, yeah, so... You interview those authors. Can you tell me the secret sauce of making connections with people through podcasts and social media? Yeah, and and Maya, that's why we're even here. Is I jumped on Twitter because I launched the podcast, and I was promoting it on Instagram. I wasn't doing very well, and then a lot of the people at work started following me, and it felt a little awkward, especially all my bosses. And so I. You know, no one was really on Twitter that I knew, so I jumped over there. And then somewhere in there, it started to grow. And you may not have ever read the book, the books, uh, books by Jim Collins, but he talks about a concept called the flywheel, and you may have. And, and so the idea of the flywheel is whatever your flywheel is, when you get it spinning, you know, picture the hamster. It's really hard to get that wheel spinning, but once it's going, it – it just ramps up. And so what I started to think about was Twitter would be my podcast flywheel in a number of ways. The more I grow on Twitter, the easier it is to reach out to guests. If I re reach out to you, Maya, when you've written your first book, and I say, I'll have you on my podcast, we get five downloads a month, and I'll promote it on my social media to my followers. You're probably going to say, Clint, I'm going to skip your podcast. I appreciate the ask. We're focusing on people who have a minimum of 10,000 downloads a month. And that's a common answer I get. But now I can reach out and say, I'll promote it on my social media to our 170,000 followers between Twitter and Instagram. And I've started to say, I write a thread to promote every book. And those threads have 300,000 to 350,000 impressions, which is almost like listens. And then the next step will be, okay, well, now you're getting bigger guests. So you get more listens. Oh, you had more listens and you had a bigger guest. So that thread, more people want to read it. Like if I write a thread about an interview with James Clear and Atomic Habits, holy crow, that thread is going to go through the roof. Hopefully people buy a couple of his books or a bunch. And then another guest will say, well, oh, James was just on his podcast. Why don't I go on? And so they just feed each other. When I'm at a million, it'll be a lot easier to ask anyone on the podcast. Yeah, that kind of like the digital leverage, um, which kind of leads to my next question. But before that, so I kind of, I totally agree. I wasn't on Instagram because all of the people from my school were on there. So I stayed away from there. I stayed on YouTube and Twitter, like just avoiding them. But now I'm going back to it because I realized like most people actually don't really care. They want to support you. They're not going to judge that much. If they do, it, it just doesn't really matter that much. 
Um, and yeah, I read Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. I don't think that's the same one. It, good to Great. He might mention the flywheel in there. So he's got the three. He's got Good to Great, Great by Choice, and Built to Last. They're all good. I think Built to Last is the last one. And that was, like, my favorite. But they're all three are phenomenal. Good to great is get the right people in the right seats, get the right people on the bus in the right seats. That's like the number one takeaway for me there. Yeah, um, I was reading that one, Good to Great, because of stocks, though. And I wanted to read Built to Last and everything. Um, but yeah, my next question, tell me what are your biggest tips for creating online and building digital leverage? Jay Yang asked that. Number one, consume good content. So good YouTube videos, good articles, good magazines, good books, good conversations with people. So that's number one. Number two is people. So too many people are good writers and good creators, but they send it out into the void. I spend as much or more time cultivating relationships as I do creating content because if you and I are in a group as an example, and you write something, you fire it to me and say, hey, Clint, I'm dropping this today. If, you know, Give it some love if it resonates. And I fire mine back to you. Now we're exposing our followers to each other. If I do that with 25 people, I'm growing even more. So find the right people whose content you resonate with, who are abundant mindset, and so you'll both be willing to share each other and then grow together. And then also surround yourself with people who are willing to push you to make your content better. I always find it frustrating that I'm in some of these groups and I'm growing faster than some people. And they say, hey, like, how are your threads going so hard? And I say, oh, well, you should take ship 30 for 30. And then four months later, they say, hey, like your threads are still banging. Like what's going on? You're like, oh, you should take ship 30 for 30. Like I write those hooks that say I've invested thousands of dollars and thousands of hours, but I don't think people realize, like legitimately, masterclass 24-7, create, publish, profit, ship 30 for 30, audience building. Those are those are four four of the courses that I've taken, uh, J.K.'s Molina's um, Molina letters. So I invest a lot in in learning, and then I put a lot of hours in. So people want to get there without the effort, you know. Like my son wanted a YouTube video channel when he was younger, and he doesn't understand my uh, like what goes into your reaching out to people, your recording. You're getting questions ready in advance. You're editing afterwards, and then you're publishing. Like the amount of hours you probably put into each video are pretty high. And a lot of young kids just want to be YouTube stars without the work. I think those are great tips. Um, I think it makes total sense to why you've been successful with everything that you said so far today. Um, I would say kind of when did you actually – I don't really know when did you actually – get on Twitter and like the time when it was like where you had a lot of followers, like maybe your first viral tweet, like when did it actually, everything started to work? I mean, I started like five years ago and I got to about 
800 followers or a thousand followers. And then I went off Twitter for three years. I came back last May. So a year and a half ago for the first five months, I sucked. And then I joined masterclass in August, 2021. So only a year, a year and a month ago. And I only had, gosh, let me pull up my, um, like 1500 followers. I crossed 10,000 basically at New Year's. So I came into January with 10,000. In April, I crossed about 25. Maybe that was March. And that's when I started taking ship 30 for 30. And then I've grown an average of 20 to 25,000 a month since then. The last two months have been pretty, been down months. I've been really sad, it, like 12,000 a month, but it's still, you know, 12,000 is bigger than, bigger than zero. So it's, it's slowing down, but we'll see. Yeah. So you've grown 10X in like a year and a half because you're sitting at like about 150K followers and you were at 1.5K like a year ago. So that's crazy. Yeah. 100X. 100X. I did the math wrong. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. Like, have you written a tweet about like growing 100X? I've written guides and, and tweets and threads and give them out to people. And it's, but you know, it's interesting. They don't really read them. So I'll probably come up you know, next fall, I'll probably launch a course. But ideally, I mean, my goal is to be at about four to 500,000 on Twitter, 200,000 on Insta, TikTok, and YouTube. So that would get us to a million. So I want to launch the course when I'm sort of at a million followers. And, and it won't just be how to grow on Twitter. It will be how to grow your brand your story, your way. And what do you think some of the best ways that you've had so far? I know you're mainly pretty much just on Twitter right now or trading really just on that. What's been like kind of one of some of the best ways or best tips you have for growing your brand on Twitter? I, I, I think what you want to do it for people is you want to figure out what you're going to be known for. And for me, like I'm creating my website and I'm, doing a website project right now. So I'm just looking over at, at it. And I tell people that I'm going to work with them on three things, how to achieve at a high level. Self-development ties into that, how to be financially literate. And then partially also how to grow your brand. And so everything I write about is going to focus on that. So it's going to be threads about mental models, mindset, emotional intelligence, things that move you forward in life, meditation, or it's going to be threads about balance sheet, income statement, net worth statement, budget, cash flow, how to analyze numbers and make more money, or it's going to be threads about how to get crap done. And the more I write about that, those are the three broad buckets. Under each one, you can have like five categories. And you just, every week, get crap done once, money once, and the be better mindset mental models once. A thread on one each week. And then fill it in with tweets that tie to that. And so you want to get to the point where when someone thinks financial literacy, oh, hey, you should check out Clint's account. 
Or you think about like, I want to do an Ironman, but I don't know how to like just start. Oh, hey, you should check out Clint. He talks a lot about that. So you want to be known, like, what am I known for? And then you just, you be consistent and you add value in that area. And you find like-minded people and you build relationships, you comment on their stuff, et cetera. But, but that consistency of voice, Maya. I was actually chatting with another kid and kind of in the content creation space. We were scheming, like, what do we want to be known for? Or not scheming. My mom said that's like a bad word. Like it has a negative connotation to it, which I didn't know. But, you know, we were trying to figure out like what we kind of two or three things we wanted to be known for. So that's good. Um, I also wrote this note down where you wrote on Twitter every day for a year. Just do all these crazy challenges. If you finish things, you do all these crazy challenges. How did you do that? It's crazy. Yeah, it, it, it was a lot. And it only ended about two weeks ago. So I, I think two or three weekends ago, I just wrote and said, I'm taking tomorrow off. You know, love you all, but I'm done. And one of the reasons I do the streaks is a big part of life is knowing yourself. And with, with the ADHD that I have, I'm a very all-in type person. Like I, I like to equate it to a, a, light, a light switch. I'm on or I'm off. I'm not a dimmer switch. So some people can be like, oh, just write four days a week. As soon as I miss two days that week, I might take the next month off. And so for me, that writing every day means that I write every day. Not that I write for four days, take six off, write for three days, take four off. When I did my run streak, I ran an average of seven kilometers a day. Like my minimum was three but I ran an average of seven a day for 525 days. And then I didn't run for like three years. <laughs> so it, it, like, the, like I, I'm a creature of extremes. And so I'd rather go extreme to the behavior that I want than extreme to nothing. Yeah. Um, I kind of feel like I have the same problem, right? Well, it's not, sometimes it's a problem, sometimes it's an advantage, where, like, sometimes the advantage is, if I go, like, if you go all in for a certain period of time into something like that, you can be very, very successful and achieve great results, so I think it's kind of an advantage, and sometimes a disadvantage, um, because then you, like, stop forever, like you said, you stop three years running um, after doing, going very intensely into it. So I heard a story a few weeks ago about Mr. Beast, who you probably know as a YouTuber. And someone said he was so obsessed with YouTube and growth strategies that he had a circle of friends on Telegram and they would they would scheme about how to grow on YouTube every day. And he was so obsessed in talking about growth and hacks and learning and how to be better. And at the end of that year, every single person in that channel had over a million followers because his obsession drove everybody. So it's, I, I agree with you. I, I like to frame it as a superpower. That's kind of like the community I want to be around, like these, these discord communities where we're all just growing in all the different ways, all the like areas that we want to mainly self-improvement. Like, I think that's a cool thing. 
Um, are would you be focused? I know it's like the strongest branch. You're talking about brand building, have a really strong community. Are you thinking about starting a Discord or something where the community can come together? I guess something like that. Yeah, whatever. Whatever I do launch, it will have community, and it, and it'll be a combination of two things. It will have a Discord where we can talk all the time, and the members can talk to each other. And then, and then there would also be a, a weekly video call. And that's where they could do like almost like office hours. Like, hey, if you sign up for my course, you have lifetime access to just drop in on this call. I'll make myself available for two hours every Tuesday at this time. You can all just fire questions at me and I'll just be there to answer them. And there's three courses I have in my mind, Maya. I would do a different night for each one and have a different discord community for each one. Because when you, and then when you look at it, I, I've interviewed a lot of coaches on the podcast. And one of them I interviewed about his book called the self-employed life. And he talked about it as having like step business models and Nicholas Cole or Cole talked about this a, a little as well in that when you look at the offerings he has, they're all based on access to him. So you can buy his digital book and learn how to write for $20. Or you can take ship 30 for 30 for 750. Or you can have him coach you one-on-one -on -one for 7,500 bucks. Or you can have him do the work for you for $75,000. And so you're just giving people Oh, you want the Discord community? That's this much a month. You want access to video calls? That's this. You want to take the course? That's this. And so you just have multiple different offerings. Yeah, so different levels of personal experiences. The more personal it is, the more value, value it is, so that therefore the higher the price will be. That makes sense. Um, so also, I don't know, I saw, this is kind of a random question, but like, I think I saw like a picture of your Instagram account where you had like a tiny home. Do you live in a tiny home? Oh, really? Oh, you were meaning my, um, cause that's not the Instagram account I'm growing. That's like my personal one. No. So what that is, it was, it was, it was the black one, right? That is, so I'm fortunate enough. I call that my bat cave. That's a building in the backyard. It's like, that's where I'm at right now. It's my office, gym, sauna. It's dad's space. Yeah, that's cool. Wow. I thought it was a tiny home. I was going to ask you about that because I watched this show. It was like Tiny Home Life or something like that, which I was always interested in. One time I was obsessed with learning about it. It, it could be a tiny home. Someone could live in here. But, but no, it's where I come to work, where I work out. And yeah, yeah, it's like dad space. Although I guess it's going to become my wife's office soon. That makes sense. So you guys are not going to be working like right by each other where y'all can talk. It'll be further apart. No, because I'll, I'll be at work. So it'll sort of be, it'll sort of be like, you know, we'll meet once or we'll meet regularly, but we'll have like a big meeting each week to say, Hey, what are the priorities this week? And then, uh, set the vision, set the direction, and then just let her rock and roll. I think only have one more question, which is really about kind of like your life experiences 
I feel like everyone had a turning point. And I asked every guest on here this question, which is basically your life before your turning point and your life after it, kind of like how you were as a kid and then when the turning point happened, which is probably in your teenage years. So yeah, can you tell me more about your life before your turning point and after it? Can I have three? Sure. You probably have many. That's always good to learn. Yeah, because yeah, I'm old. I'm older than most of your guests. So Gary V says under 50 years old is not old. Well, there you go. I'm young. So, so the the first one would probably be my wife. I was a, I was a pretty poor student. I didn't do well in school. I didn't even really, I didn't go really. And I, I didn't put any effort in. And she was one of the top two smartest kids in our, in our class, in our grade. Uh, and she believed in me and taught me that I could be more. So that was big. And then I would say when I was about 31, 32, I was pretty out of shape. And I think I had lived most of my life accomplishing cool things, but mostly in my head, not in real life. And a friend made a joke about me and running. And all of a sudden we had a bet. And the day we were supposed to have the bet, it snowed, so I didn't have to do it. But he made a really mean comment. And I remember I was reading Triathlon Magazine that night, and I saw an advert for Iron Man. And I said to my wife, I'm going to do this. And she just said, yeah, sure, okay. Because up until then, like I'd always say stuff like that and then not do it. And that was the first time I put together what's sort of my mantra is know what you want, understand what it takes do the work day in, day out. And so I went from like overweight, out of shape, couch potato to I lost about 40 pounds. And within two years, I did an Ironman and a bunch of half Ironmans, try a bunch of Olympic distance, but I did the Ironman within two years. And that taught me I could do anything as long as I knew it, planned it, did it consistently. So that was, that was the first one. The second one would be a few years later, I was in a job and we were talking about what my future would be. And I met with an industrial psychologist and we ended up deciding to go our mutual ways. But the psychologist gave me in their report, very good recommendations on how to improve as a person. They had, a, they had a mantra that I still somewhat live by, slow down, listen, be more patient and reflective because my ADHD was pretty out of control. Like I was just, and on their list of books, one of them was feeling good, the new mood therapy. And it's the one that taught me how to shut the mind off and take control. And that was the biggest change in my life. Then the third one was another two years later maybe four this time I had been going through a rough stretch in my relationship and you know, my wife and I committed to both being better and fighting to improve. And so I, I, I also had two young sons. And so I joined what's called a, a men's group, meet with guys, talk about what's happening in our life, how to improve and try to be better, better men for our families, for our future, for my children. And one of the guys, when we did one of the exercises, he said, I remember I told him, I, I always laughed when we did a certain exercise. And he said, 
maybe you don't take yourself seriously enough and maybe other people don't either. I was like, oh, it was like, it's like a slap, like a kick to the gut. And I, you're probably not going to be surprised, Maya. I went all in. I, I went to like the recommended reading list for that group. I read every book. I started being like the most consistent person within three months of him saying that, maybe five months. Instead of being in a group, I was leading a group. I did that for another year and a bit. And that's when I created my roadmap of where my future would be. And I called it Mission 2028. Now it's probably Mission 2025. And the idea was that I would transition from CFO to being a writer, podcaster, coach and consultant, real estate and venture capital investor. And the plan wasn't to start any of that until 2024. And then COVID came. All of a sudden I had time. I started it all two years ago and now we're here today. So those would be the three. And, and for you at your age, for my sons, I would do those in reverse order. One, I would understand my, my shadows and how my childhood has impacted me at this part of my life and then rewire myself the way I want. I would fix my thinking and then I would learn how to do anything with the three steps. But those three together, like I'm now comfortable I can do anything in this world and that what I've achieved to date is a tiny fraction of what I will achieve. Those are great. Those are great turning points. Uh, one that you kind of mentioned was like basically vision, action, and then separation. I think that was a good one. That's kind of something that I've been thinking about, like kind of the steps to change anything in your life. And those are like the first three steps that I've come to realize. Um, so that's great. Um, I think that's pretty much all the questions I had I had so far. Um, I know I'm going to think of way more questions as you expand out into all these other realms of content creation and as you and your wife take on all of the platforms in the world and become very successful at it. And so I can't wait to look back on this and see how successful you are. Um, I think it's going to be great. I really enjoyed this conversation. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for all of the preparation that you did. And I'm blown away that you're doing what you're doing at your age, Maya. This is phenomenal. Thank you. And that, my guys, is like the last part of the pod, this podcast episode. Stay tuned for the next podcast episode of the Adoptives Podcast with Maya Parker. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can go to anchor.fm uh, slash the Adoptives with Maya Parker podcast uh, slash support. And you can support us there. Also, make sure to give us a follow and a rating. It helps so much. And peace. Also, I have this peace sign my grandmother got me, so this is really cool. So now I, you can, like, see it there, too. Peace. Because <laughs> she said I said, say peace a lot. Anyways, peace. <laughs>